This is a Therapy for Dads podcast. I'm your host. My name is Travis. I'm a therapist, a dad, a husband. Here at Therapy for Dads, we're reclaiming the narrative of fatherhood, one story at a time. You can follow the journey on Instagram at Therapy for Dads and our website, www.therapyfordads.com. Welcome. So welcome, Andrew, to the Therapy for Dads podcast. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing good, doing good. The kids are asleep. And Same. And hoping, praying they stay that way. Same. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for those of you, well, everyone that was not in the green room, and the green room is a really nice, very posh place before we start recording. A lot of high-end equipment and, you know, there's servers and waiters and everything. Um, we were just talking about how both of our wives are out on the town as we are recording this. And so we're <laughs> we're watching the kids while doing this. So That's um, right. Double duty. Yeah, double duty. This is dad duty, right? It's, it's real life. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. That's right. It is. Which is fun. Um, so I like to do this always. Uh, if you're tuning in for the very first time, I'm calling in from Southern California in South Orange County. And where are you calling in from, Andrew? I am calling in from Utah, from uh, a little town called Pleasant Grove. It's tucked up in the mountains about, uh, well, at the base of the mountains, about 45 minutes south of downtown Salt Lake area. Mm. And what time is it there for you? It is 9.16. Okay. Yeah, just an hour ahead of us. Yeah. Yeah, I've been to Utah, been to uh, Arches. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Southern, oh. Southern Utah is yeah. just a hidden gem of the it's- West. It is incredible. It blew my mind. It blew my mind how pretty the rocks were. I just, I never thought anything, I could see anything that pretty like desert in the desert. And it was just what like, time okay. of year did you go? Uh, it was, oh gosh, I was 22 and I went, it was, we went backpacking to Colorado and it was one of our stops. We kind of stayed in arches oh, for nice. a couple of nights. And I want to say it was probably like, I think it was springtime, end okay. of spring, like May. Yeah. June, something like that. May. We were yeah. we were just down in Capitol Reef National Park area this uh, January when there was snow. Yeah, and so it was just an unbelievable sight with the red rock just covered with a layer of snow on top. Oh, unbelievable colors! Oh, dude, yeah, that's. Really... I got some beautiful photos. It was just unbelievable. Yeah, it's it's amazing what nature. It, it just blows my mind when you see these yeah. things in person. You're like, okay, this is pretty incredible stuff. So, yeah. um, so Utah, California, and can you do a quick intro? Like, how many kids does Andrew have? Who's Andrew? What does he do? Yeah, so uh, I'm Andrew McFarlane, and I am a dad with an amazing, awesome, and supportive and beautiful wife named Melanie. And then I've got two boys. I've got a five-year-old named Eli, and I have a two-and-a-half-year-old named Blake, hmm. and they are a handful. Two boys <laughs> is just, it's a lot, <laughs> but it's a good time. It's full of energy, yeah. full of fun, all of that. Yeah. And then uh, as far as what I do, my day job is I'm a financial analyst for a, a tech firm, um, and then outside of that, I do like family photography, portraiture, um, and then I, my main side hustle is I run a dad blog called, uh, the Papa perspective on Instagram, TikTok, website, all of that. And that's where I, I like to share my dad journey hmm. kind of I like to give a lens into what modern fatherhood is like here in this, this crazy year of 2021 that we hmm. are in. Yeah. And that's actually how I stumbled upon you was through another dad um, yeah, another dad and a mutual yeah. friend of ours on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, own it, dad. Uh, yeah, at own it, dad. Right. That's shout his, out. Uh, shout out to Sean. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to Sean. Own it, dad. Hey, Sean, if you're listening, uh, I'll text you to make sure you listen to this. That's right. Um, <laughs> that you got a shout out. Um, that's how we met. Is uh, he, I think he tagged you in one of my posts or something, yeah. and I clicked on it. I was like, oh, hey, this is another dad. Let me reach yeah. out. And I've gotten the habit of just asking people now. Of just I'm just gonna ask and. No yeah. pressure. And you said, yes. I'm like, sweet. Another, another dad who wants to talk and talk about 100%. his dad journey and got me excited. And um, we actually had a conversation before this and yeah. both, we both have boys named Eli. Um, yeah. Yours is the eldest, mine's the youngest, two-year-old Eli. And I, we yeah. also both have two boys. So I could yeah. relate to the boy, I guess, boy dad 
uh, life. And it's a lot of fun, a lot of energy. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of mayhem and chaos. A lot of mayhem and chaos. and uh, But it's great. I mean, I love I love having boys. And so we, we, we got to share that, that we both like that name, Eli. So that's really cool. Yeah. Um, since we're on that topic of, you know, your blog and, and yeah. your Instagram and TikTok and you quickly kind of previewed, hey, it's getting a glimpse into dad life. Uh, of 2020, 2021. Can you tell us a bit about your, your dad journey? Um, yeah. So I always, I always wanted to be a dad. It was something that was just, I I knew it was something I was going to do. It didn't really hit me how difficult it was going to be until like child number one is actually born. Cause I mean, you you just kind of fantasize of all the super cool things that are going to happen. Like I'm going to have a couple of kids, maybe I'll have a, a daughter and I get to be the super overprotective classic dad there and then have tea parties and things like that. Or maybe I'll have a couple sons and we'll play football in the yard and baseball and things, things like that. Um, but I, I didn't have an easy, easy jump into fatherhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so at, at about 27 weeks, uh, of my wife's pregnancy with Eli, our, our firstborn, we we found out that he had a congenital heart defect, um, and it was it's called coarctation of the aorta. So basically, what that means is that his aorta was just pinched in in one area. Mm. And it was just affecting the pressures inside of his heart. And it was something that no matter what, as soon as he's born, we need to do open heart surgery and we got to go and cut that open, widen that, the widen the aorta so it like blood flow can be normal and everything will be great. And so we, we heard that. And because it was like our first time ever going through this, we didn't know how to respond. So we were like, okay, you guys are the doctors. You tell Mm -hmm. us what to do. Hmm. And, um, so delivery day comes and we knew that as we were, we were placed in a special delivery room inside of the the hospital at the university of Utah. Hmm. And in that room, there's a window to another room in the hospital where they could quickly hook up specific medications to him that he would need to keep certain valves open that are only available when the the child is in the womb. And we had to keep these certain archways open to his heart in order to keep the pressures um, at a at a appropriate level for the surgeon to go and do the surgery. So my wife delivers. It's a super amazing experience. And then all of a sudden, it's like a quick hug to Eli. And then, okay, here he goes. Like, we didn't get Mm. any skin to skin contact time. We didn't get any. It was immediate as soon as he was born. It was like a hi, son, bye, son type thing. And that was extremely, that was extremely difficult for my wife. Um, And, and then for myself to have to see my wife go through that. Uh, cause you want to, you want to be strong. You want to be able to, to help hold the fort down. Like it was, it was just, mm. I th- I, and this adds later to the story. Like it kind of built on to this overall stress that I had of, I felt like I had to be the man and take control of everything, which was difficult for me. Cause I like being in control. I like, mm. I like knowing the ins and outs of everything. And this, I knew absolutely nothing. I didn't know anything about fatherhood and I knew way less about being a doctor and a surgeon controlling the situation. Um, yeah. What was that in that, when that moment when your son was taken, brushed off, what was that? I mean, emotionally, mentally like for you? Um, the, the immediate, the immediate, cause, cause you want, we, we were focused on, we want him to live, survive and have a good life. So my immediate thoughts and reaction where like, Hey, let's, we cut the, I got to cut the umbilical cord and I'm like, Hey, let's, let's get him through this window. Let's make sure that he's set up and safe. It wasn't until after that happened and he wasn't in the room with us anymore where it was like, Oh man, we we're doing this. Like this is, this is started this, Mm -hmm. this whole open heart surgery thing is about to begin. Um, and, and shortly, shortly after he was, he had like his medications, um, running and everything. I, I got to go and like do the, go through the sterilization process and everything to then go visit with him. And it was in that, that, that room where I got to have like 
some solid one-on-one time with him. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that's kind of my little claim to fame. I got more one-on-one time after he was born than my wife did. Hmm. Um, so I get to pick on her for that, uh, way at, way long after the fact. Yeah. Um, but no, it was, it was in that moment in that room. I got one of my favorite photos, um, that I have with him where he's just laying there all these wires are hooked up to him and he's mm. like looking around this newborn kid, like just hours into this world has no idea what's coming to him. And I'm just holding his, his little hand just kind of wraps mm. around my finger and your heart just melts of like, man, I just, I just want you to survive. I just want you to live mm. and I can't do anything about it because mm. you want to be there. You want to protect your child and I, you can't like, mm. there was, there was nothing, nothing we could do. Um, yeah. Kind of helpless feeling, right? Yeah. And it's, it's a terrible feeling to, to feel when, when your dad is, is when it's like helpless, hopeless, and yeah. you have no idea what's going to go on. And to add on to it is after, um, after he was settled, he was placed into a transportation kind of box and he was about to get wheeled into the cardiac intensive care unit, the CICU, mm-hmm. uh, where he was going to spend the next month. Um, wow. How long was the surgery before he got carted off? So um, he hadn't had the surgery yet. And oh, that was okay. that was part of the that was part of the difficulty is after he was born, they wanted to do another echocardiogram, which is just basically basically like an ultrasound on his heart. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to do that on him specifically because beforehand it was like through the womb they did echocardiograms like on my wife to to see eli and it's just difficult with all the interference of everything and so then once he was born they found out there was a second problem they found out he also had hypoplastic left heart syndrome which is basically the left the lower left chamber of his heart the left side of his heart was just small Hmm. and the valves between the left side of his heart were also just things just weren't functioning properly and it was causing a lot of stress and pressure on his heart. And so the, um, the doctor, I think it was like a student doctor cause it's a student hospital came mm-hmm. in and basically dropped this huge bomb on us. Literally, I think it was eight hours after he was born and they had already done all this stuff. They said that he's probably going to have a very difficult surgery. He's going to have to go through a series of multiple surgeries and he's going to live till maybe 20. And we're like, Oh, and it, it sunk in, uh, even further. Um, Hmm. and we were just hoping and praying for something to change. And to, um, the next, the next seven days, um, no, actually the next, uh, 10 days, he didn't have surgery for 10 days cause they, they meant to do it just shortly after he was born. But then once they found that he had the second issue every single day, there was a group of cardiologists that got together at like nine in the morning and discussed all of these different kids cases in the, in the CICU. Mm-hmm. And with Eli's situation, they're like, his heart, the left side of his heart's small, but it's functioning well enough. Do we, do we go through the big process of turning him from a four chamber, four chamber normal heart to a three chamber heart? Hmm. And they just kept flip-flopping back and forth. And then the surgeon basically came in um, and said, hey, we need to operate on this kid. Like it's, it's there's at least one thing that I have to go in there and fix and it's the pinched aorta and I'm going to fix that. And once I do that, we're going to see how things go. That was, that was on day nine, right before his surgery, the surgeon came in and told us that. And we're like, sweet, we finally have, because I can't imagine you're just like every single day. It was a different answer. They're like, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And what was that whole period? Like, I can't even imagine. It was brutal. It's like, cause, cause (laughs) we didn't have the normal experience that most of the world has of you have a child, you're at the hospital for 24 hours, you go home and you enjoy all the newborn snuggles and lack of sleep. And, (laughs) and we didn't, we didn't get that. And after a couple days of spending the night at the hospital, I was telling my wife, Melanie, I'm like, we need to go home and take care of ourselves. Mm. 
And that was one of the the hardest but most necessary experiences for us because as soon as we walked in our front door, my wife broke down immediately. Mm. Um, and it was, it was because she had imagined her whole life that, you know, you get pregnant, you get married, you get pregnant and you have this baby and then everything's peachy keen and perfect. And that was all turned upside down. And, um, I remember leaving the hospital on, on day three at like nine o'clock at night. And she, we, we were in the car for maybe, I don't know, five minutes down the road. And she immediately just started crying and being like, turn the car around. We need to go back. I need to be there. And I'm like, no, we need to like, he has world-class nurses, technicians, and surgeons and doctors around the clock with him taking care of everything. Mm-hmm. Now the best thing we can do is take care of ourselves mm-hmm. to then show up the next day ready yeah. to ha- ready to be there for him. Because um, the only thing we could do was hold him and change diapers, and that was that was what we could do to to be to be there for him. Um, yeah. And so um, my wife looks back on that and she's like, you know, I wanted to punch you in the face for taking taking me home. Yeah. Um, but at the end it was, it was super helpful because we were able to get a good night's sleep because we were sleeping on some little twin bed together in a tiny little room that they oh, had. Sure. And I can't even, um, I, I can't imagine you slept really that well regardless. No, there was no I sleeping mean, hat at all. Like you're yeah. just up through I mean, the night worried sick. Yeah. I'd be spinning all the time. I mean, I did not have that experience and just even watching your kids breathe at night. You're just like, I can't sleep. And I, yeah, not even close to your experience, but that's how I felt. The first you're worried about SIDS kid. and everything else. Yeah, you're, you're just like, like, are they going to breathe? They're going to breathe, yeah. and especially with first kid. And so that was mine. Like, I, I was anxious, right. but this has got to be a whole. I mean, this is a whole other level of like, yeah, you don't have answers, and it's confusing. And that one day is this, next day is this, and we're waiting, and we still can't take him home. You're right. I mean, it's so much pressure and stress, and and there's nothing you can do about it because no. you know, for me, I I would put it put myself in a stereotypical kind of man role where I like to have all the answers. I like to fix things and I like there to not be any problems. Mm-hmm. And you, I, I couldn't do any of that. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not the surgeon. I'm not the doctor. I can't mm-hmm. do anything. The most I can do is, is show up in the morning at, I think we were, we woke up every day at like six. We we're at the hospital by seven and um, we were there till late at night. And thankfully there was a, there was a room there called the Ronald McDonald family room. Uh, mm. I don't know if people are familiar with the Ronald McDonald house charities, but small little plug for them. Uh, if you ever have a child going through any sort of, um, any sort of long process or recovery surgery, anything at the hospital, if you have to stay an extended period of time, Ronald McDonald family rooms are where you get two hot meals a day mm. brought in by people from the community, um, or, or businesses or anybody that donates. Um, and then it's just a place where you can go. That feels like home fireplace, Mm -hmm. TVs, sofas, showers, beds, like comfortable beds. But because we were, we were too close to the hospital, we were only a 30 minute drive. We, we had to go home every single night and save the beds and rooms for people that came in from Idaho or Colorado or other Mm -hmm. places. But, um, fantastic resource for us uh, because that's how I kind of mentally recharged while they're at the hospital. Cause you're, I'm sitting in, in the CICU still waiting for my son to have surgery. And then there, I see all these other kids in these other rooms with tubes and wires mm-hmm. and things hooked up to them as well. And parents that are just distraught sitting in these chairs. And then there's just the, the code blues everywhere. And you're mm-hmm. just like, yeah. Like, is that going to be, is that going to be my child? Yeah. Are we going to be the ones where all the nurses and doctors have to run to the room and start resuscitating my newborn? Hmm. And a lot of these kids were like five and under in this, in this place. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a hellhole. Yeah. Um, Sounds like just heavy, just, yeah, it's hellhole. a hellhole with yeah. angels walking around in it. It's a hmm. super weird dynamic because yeah. you have all of these healthcare workers that are just absolute gems. Mm. Some of the best human beings in the world are yeah. in, in those, those children's hospitals mm. and they, and the stress and the, the, 
just everything that they have to go through to order to help these children is it's brutal to see. Mm, Um, but anyway, yeah. So, uh, we had that conversation with the surgeon on day nine and then day 10, we showed up at like 6am to the hospital and we basically gave Eli a hug, waved goodbye, sent him off with this anesthesiologist that I still remember to this day, this kooky, like 60 year old guy with this handlebar mustache that was just all full of smiles. And it was, it was he had a good sense of humor too. So it was kind of lighten the spirits and lighten the mood in, in the morning. Hmm. Um, and then we, Hey, we were out of the hospital for eight hours. They just wow. gave us a little pager that would give us updates throughout the day. And then we finally got the page that he was off bypass and to come back to the hospital and then we sat down with the surgeon and we were like, what did, what did he do? Did he, our biggest concern was, does, did he go to a three chamber heart? Because if yeah. they did that, then he would have another series of two to three surgeries afterward to help finish the conversion. And then oh. boom, his life expectancy and everything about his life changes completely. And, um, and then the surgeon comes into the room, sits us down and he said, everything went perfect. Hmm. And wow. he said, all I had to do was fix the pinched aorta and everything just settled down. And I, and he was like, this is one of the, if not the smallest left heart syndrome, we have left a four chamber heart on record. Wow. And we were like, oh boy, like we just dodged a huge bullet and this huge, wow. like stress relief just came Mm. off our shoulders and we're like sweet everything's gonna be great and normal um until Mm. um a couple days after the surgery and it started this process of the pressures in his heart started to to raise back up and then they had to do a second operation where they basically go in and stick a catheter up his leg into his heart to actually check the pressures because the echocardiogram was getting inconsistent numbers Hmm. and so they had to get a device inside of his heart in order to get the actual physical numbers and so they i think they only had to do that surgery once and they they got okay numbers and then that started us um that started kind of the journey out of the hospital after after that procedure it was like another couple weeks and then we finally got to go to the floor and when you go to the floor that's like the recovery room okay so he was still in the that intensive cardiac unit post surgery when you guys finally found out that hey there's something else we got to go in and check yes. with the okay so you guys weren't actually home at that point you were still in yeah we weren't home with him we would just go home every night so it okay. was it was a full 10 days in one specific room in the CICU then he had surgery and then it was another three weeks inside of the CICU where it was just um, basically just monitoring the pressures inside of his heart and then after we got the the clearing after a month in the CICU it was two weeks on the floor hmm. Um, and in that last week and uh, on the floor, it was when they trained us on how to change out his tubes for oxygen. Cause he had to be on oxygen for a full, uh, I think it was a, I think it was a full year. Oh, wow. Oxygen, like, a year. just like little nose things mm-hmm. or is it? Yeah. Wow. To help oxygenate his blood, um, mm-hmm. a little bit better. Wow. And then he had a feeding tube for about six months that mm-hmm. it was an NG tube. So, it, um, go through the nose and then down into his stomach. And we had to insert that ourselves and they had to teach us how to do it. Um, and that was, we got the hang of it. There was only one time where Melanie called me home from work early to, cause he was like, he would gag and throw up if we didn't do it right. Oh buddy. So, um, yeah, so that was for about six months. And then he was on three different medications that we had to do multiple times throughout the day, every single day. And, um, and then we had cardiac, um, appointments, checkups about every six months for the first, uh, I think 18 months. Hmm. And then after that, it was just annual. And so, and it still is every single year he has to go in and see his cardiologist and they basically go and check all the pressures in his heart. And every single year we go through the same kind of cycle of what are we going to get? Are things mm. going to be better? Are things going to be worse? That kind of um, emotional roller coaster. Oh, every single time, yeah. Because yeah. we, we we forget about it 
throughout yeah, the year because he's bet, yeah. he's just a crazy little kid yeah. who loves to run and jump and play yeah. and and you wouldn't you wouldn't notice a thing yeah well yeah um and then after after three years of being on a bunch of different medications we finally asked if we could get off medications and mm-hmm. we asked if he could get off because he was having some some nightmares and i and uh and a family member of mine was on one of the same medications Eli was on and and this family member was saying that she had like hallucinations and nightmares and things and Eli was starting to have some he was waking up multiple times in the middle of the night and we're like maybe he's having nightmares from this thing so we asked to see if he could get off and the doctor's like sure we can try it hmm. um and then at his that was at his three-year appointment at his four-year appointment she was like things are okay but we'll see if in a year he needs to go back on medication hmm. and then and what's finally, that medication do for him is it for the, it's I'm guessing it was it's a, heart it was a it was a beta blocker. Um, okay. um, I don't know if it was. I think it was also a bit of a blood thinner or something, just to make it easier for the heart to pump blood. Okay, gotcha. And not have to work his heart. Okay. And then, yeah. And then finally, um, what? Uh, today is the twenty eighth of October. It was a month ago mm-hmm. that we finally heard from the doctor. His his heart is like one point above normal. And we are finally wow. like that's, breathing that's like, through the trees. Wow. Like, oh my gosh. One point above normal. Yeah. Meaning it's like, it, it's a, that's a, really good, right? I mean, it's fantastic. It's, yeah, it's like, virtually like he's virtually good to go. Four wow. chamber heart, no issues. Oh nothing. my gosh. I can't, doctor, I can't even imagine that. <laughs> and the, do- yeah. And the doctor was like, there is no way we could have predicted this. And Dang. taking him off the medications and everything, like we had, it was a shot in the dark. And I'm like, sweet, the wow. mac and cheese and chicken nuggets. That's, and the running around, that's all he needed. <laughs> oh man. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine just the relief of that. Just that, like you said, uh, breathe through the trees. I mean, I'm just imagining that's a big breath. Yeah. Oh yeah, um, it's a long. I think long doesn't do it. That it's a long it. ass journey. Yeah, and it's, I was just saying. I don't think long done. describes it. No, no, but that's Ever. a big. It's a bit. It's a big milestone. Big change. But yes. Well, and and I mean, um, it was that. It was because of speaking of the whole theme of the podcast therapy for dads, it was because of that experience that I, I didn't know in a roundabout way, but I was, I was having, um, I was having some like mental breakdowns and some like digestive issues and things like that. And I couldn't explain Hmm. why I was feeling anxious about certain things. And I finally Hmm. decided one day, like maybe I need to talk to somebody about it. And that was my first experience reaching out to a therapist and getting help. And it was, it was weird because I was, I was raised in a pretty conservative household where you're a man, you solve your own problems and you can handle things and whatever, just push your feelings down, hide things away. You can take care of it. And, um, and so I had to break through that barrier. And like, luckily somehow I did break through that barrier and eventually start talking to somebody. And it was just an extreme relief and helped me get through that experience and gave me a lot of tools that eventually helped my wife and I build a stronger relationship through this experience. Because this is an experience where it can either make or break your relationship with your wife. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, these big climactic um, traumas, they really are. They either draw, and I've seen it happen both ways. It draws the couple closer together and more bonded and more team or it rips, like you said, rips people apart. Just um, right. the pressure, you know, and the stress and all the stuff that comes in with that. Um, you know, going back just to that initial image of the end, the expectation of what the first night of being a parent was going to be yeah. versus the reality of that wasn't our reality. And that wasn't our reality for I mean, the first time you took him home was how old was he when you first brought him home? He was almost two months. What was that? What was that process like to bring your son Eli home for the very oh, first time? Oh, it was. We were over the moon. Hmm. Like, I mean, he didn't come home easily. Like, it wasn't just him. It was like him, a twenty-gallon oxygen tank and a hmm. feeding tube with a feeding bag and a feeding machine that would pump the food into his stomach and a bunch of medications. Wow. And, and wires all still kind of tied to him. Uh, mm. So it wasn't 
clean, but it was like yeah. as soon as he was home, um, we have a photo of my wife and I and him on our couch with him just laying on us the first night we were home in our in our apartment with him mm. and you could just he was smiley and giggly but you can just see on our faces like oh man we all just we went through hell to get to this moment mm. and um it's a surreal surreal image to to look back on yeah but it was it was pure bliss finally bringing him into the in, yeah. into our apartment yeah home for the first time yeah and it's like crushing cr- uh, crossing the threshold for the first time bringing him oh, home it was with incredible the, yeah I, I mean just probably just like oh my gosh we could we could be home as a family yeah. and with our son and sure we got like you said this entourage of equipment um what was the felt sense from between home having him home versus having him kind of back at the hospital? Was there, was there a felt difference for you? Was it kind of the same or was it a significant difference? Oh, it was a significant difference. Cause you're not, the thing is I, I had a lot of just anxiety from listening to beeping machines oh. because as soon as one of his, his medications ran out, the machine would just start beeping over and over and over again. And you're just like, we should get the nurse when he, he needs to have his medications. He needs to have this. He needs to have that. And my wife was constantly, um, she was, uh, pumping milk because, and she was doing it religiously and just like overproducing because she was anxious of like, this is the only thing I can do to help Mm. Eli. So I'm going to do my best damn job to do it. And so she, um, so she was constantly focused and stressed on that. And it's like, once we, once we had him home, a lot of that stress of just being in the hospital kind of melted away and we felt like we could, we just adjusted to the new normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and we yeah. just welcomed positive changes of feeding him with a bottle after a certain amount of time and finally getting him off the oxygen machines and yeah and all, all these kind of my these like markers and yeah just slowly shedding the, all the equipment and medications was just yeah. such a process what i'm even imagining you know two things one is that you know being in the in the hospital and hearing those beeps because you're not only hearing the beeps of your son right but you said you're hearing Everyone you know, you're hearing else. stuff you're hearing beeps and cold blues i mean i just just the stress and anxiety level i mean i it's We'll talk about this soon, more about the mental health piece. But yeah. well, no wonder why you probably were having breakdowns. I mean, that's like, it's yeah. like in a in a way being kind of at war for twenty twenty four seven for months, like constant hearing. It's like you're on this alert constantly, constantly. You know, and a, um, yeah. and I'm I'm one of the the I've I've wrote about this and done a little bit of research on it. I'm I'm one of the ten percent of dads that that deals with postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. My wife doesn't. She's she's totally fine. Um and I go through all of these different thoughts of how do I provide for this child? What am I going to do? Am I going to be a successful dad? Can I handle this? Can I am I going to screw up my kid or mm. whatever? Like all these things that just weighed on me. Mm. I remember one of the specific breakdowns that I had. It was like a huge turning point where I was holding Eli, I was trying to help calm him down, but I couldn't. And Mm -hmm. it's like, I'm the dad, I'm supposed to be able to do this. Why can't I do this? Why is he not calming down? Yeah. And then it just got to the point where Melanie came and said, Hey, you like, just just go like, I've I've got him, you just go and I just step out the door. I like slam the door and then slam my my fists onto the ground. And this mm-hmm. is like February or something in northern Utah and it's freezing outside. And I just go and throw open the door to the balcony and just go sit outside by myself, mm-hmm. curled up in a ball, stewing in my thoughts like, what the mm-hmm. hell did I just do? Yeah. And why is this happening to me? Mm-hmm. Um and eventually Melanie was able to to calm Eli down, put him back to sleep and then came out and like brought me inside and helped mm-hmm. calm me down. And I'm just like, what is going on? Yeah. Um, and it was a it, that was a huge turning point. I looking back at that, I think it was a huge turning point in our relationship where I realized I don't have to be strong all the time. Oh, wow. I don't and, have to be strong all the time. And I can, and it's okay for me to be stressed and it's okay for me to lean on my wife. And that I think was one of the first times that I ever done that. Cause I, I grew up in a pretty, um, patriarch focused, uh, 
um, religion and it was like men are the head of the household and have yeah. all the answers and solve all the problems and fix everything and everyone can lean on on the man. And it was just so different for me. Like now I had been married, I think three years at the time at that moment. And it was like, oh, I need help. Mm. And that was a super powerful experience. And I, I look back on that now very fondly, mm. despite how difficult it was at the time. Well, and it sounds like in that moment you were, I mean, not only were you dealing with, the, I'm going to use the word trauma, but the traumas of yeah. your, everything went through with your son, uh, months and months of that coming home and then just being a dad, like just being a dad and newborn, it's hard, right? It's a hard transition and sleeping and trying to calm. So that, you know, just becoming a parent is hard in and of itself. Just right. dealing with a right. newborn is, it's a transition in and of itself. It's stressful in and of itself. And then you throw in, you know, everything you just shared, yeah. significant traumas and constant anxiety and stress for months. I mean, your body was probably at, it's like constantly up here. Yeah. You know? I'd never felt that before either. Yeah. And who, I mean, who would really, unless you're in an, unless you're in a situation that's causing you to be constantly like on high alert, high, almost 100%. like you're in constant fight flight, you know, constant. And, and we were. <laughs> you, you, it's survival. It's survival yeah. mode. You're, you're faced with a, a danger, essentially. Like right. this is a dangerous place, dangerous. And at any moment danger can, can happen and it's happening and we're constantly trying to cope and manage. And so you're at this constant high level of you know, high cortisol, high adrenaline, and then you get home. And yes. then on top of just having probably just trying to calm down and going in your head, which I've been there before and those thoughts can come and you start to just what's wrong and you're tired and it's just, you know, it it's hard to compose yourself. And on top of that, you're dealing with that other piece, you know, my background of a kind of a unhealthy patriarchal family, you know, uh, yes. at least in that perspective, that, that sense Right. Where I have to be this solid, you know, strong Superman where there's no support. Like, that's me. And then finding yourself in a ball. But then you said the shift and realizing yeah. it's okay. I don't have to be, quote unquote, that particular type of strong all the yes. time. Right? Because right. strength looks different <laughs> yeah. in different circumstances. That right. strength sometimes looks like receiving the help from your wife and saying, oh, okay, I can get that. And it's right. a different type of strength and having that shift. And that, that must have been incredibly difficult in that moment, I'm sure, to like let that go and to sink it in because you're going against this yeah. whole, your normal upbringing of what it's supposed to look like. And now this is happening, you know? Right. And that was, that was a super hard mental shift. And I had started listening. That was, it was even before that I had started listening to podcasts on how to be a better man and what does that mean and yeah. and some of those started to help me break down some of those stereotypes before which I think was helpful that led me mm. into that experience and to be able sure. to look back on it and recognize how powerful it was um but something else that slowly happened over time is I started to share these as I started to share these experiences on my Instagram my and, and my new blog at the time because that's right about when I started my blog was after mm. that experience as a way to help cope with everything is I, I wrote about Eli's whole health experience to kind of release it. Yeah. Wow. And as I started to share that, some of my friends would reach out some of my close college buddies. And it was, that was also a turning point too, where, um, there's this whole, like, I'm a man, lone wolf. I can solve all my own problems to, you know, that's not how men did things hundreds of years ago. Like men worked in groups Mm -hmm. and to go hunting and things like that. And it, and it feels like, you know, let's start rekindling that. And so with, with a, a couple really close friends, I'm able to share these experiences mm -hmm. and we call each other now regularly. And, uh, yeah, like I've got, I've got a, a new friend here that lives close to us here in Utah that I, I can chat with about anything. And then I've got a college buddy of mine named Andrew as well. <laughs> um, and he and I chat regularly at least at least once every other week if not weekly we're texting or chatting about anything and you know sharing struggles of life marriage and kids mostly kids how <laughs> to get through that and it just helps you feel normal and you yeah. you know you just get advice and ideas from from other men that are in the same situation and it yeah. just it just helps and that it sounds like that was a shift too where you didn't do that prior I did not. I did okay. not. And I kept all of my personal problems close unless it was like a problem related to like a girl or a girlfriend and you want your wanted your buddy's opinions. 
Got it. Um, like then you'd you get just, it. But yeah, this you, type of stuff was like contained. Yeah, inside. you don't share your you don't share your problems with the other guys. You've got a good right. life. Things are right. good. Yeah. When you go why would out, you I mean? Why out. would you share? Right? Yeah. You just go out to have a good time with the boys, and that's it. Yeah, but we don't talk about anything really. So there's a shift. So you started blogging. It sounds like a little bit later on to cope um, yeah. with it. It wasn't early on. It was how how far into you know I think your Eli was journey. about six months. Okay. Well, what a wonderful, I mean, gosh, what a wonderful outlet to just, okay, did, was it just a, were you always a writer? Is it something you always did? Or was it just kind of like, hey, I got to do something with this and then oh, start a blog and do it? Or So um, part of my schooling, I, I was a, I studied finance and marketing and I did a internet marketing internship. And there was, a, I had to write, part of, part of my job was I had to write a blog post like once every other week or something. And so I, I got some basic blog posts and search engine optimization and website building um, ideas. I even took a website course, like a business website course. And uh, so I, I'd, I'd been interested in the idea. And even one of my coworkers had like a beauty blog where she was like, yeah, I make like a, I get free stuff every once in a while. And I make a couple hundred bucks hmm. a month. And I'm like, oh, that's super cool. I wonder if I could do that too. And then I kind of like blew it off and because I didn't know what to write about until I had a kid. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to. I've got something to write about. <laughs> plus, yeah. plus it was like, it's the way, the way it all started out was I had no idea how to be a dad and this is going to help me also research, um, parenting and fatherhood and things mm. and, and share what I, what I learn with other men and hopefully they can, they follow along and, and gain something from it. Um, and, and my, my, my mission has evolved over time, but that's, that's where it all started. And, mm. you know, that's still, still part of, one of the main reasons why I do what I do. Hmm. Uh, what, I mean, what a wonderful mission for you to learn. Hey, you know, yeah, I could learn mostly too for and... me, like full stop. I, I, I gain a lot from this <laughs> to help yeah, me but, be a better dad. But why not? You get, you learn, you're becoming a better dad and you're like, Hey, maybe I could give this maybe, gift and, to other dads, you know? Yeah. And, and for me, when I get a message from another dad that says, Hey, like it's super out of the blue. Some guys like I've been following you for a little while. Please keep doing what you're doing. I love watching all your stuff. It really yeah, makes sure. my day. And I'm like, like that, man. wow, like yeah. I'm making a difference. And I've gotten that message like a good handful of times. And I'm like, mm. you know, if I'm doing this and only 10, 20 guys are benefiting from this, most most of my followers are women. And I get that mm. because not a lot well, of guys it, follow. Social, other... Yeah, social media is also predominantly dominated by it's, women. It skews that way. And yep. so I'm not surprised, but yep. you know, I'm hoping I can slowly get grab some, get a few dads in there. You yeah. know, don't follow just ESPN and your favorite sports teams. Come and learn with yeah. me how we can be better yeah. dads. And I relate to that. I mean, I, part of why I started my interview podcast process was to essentially talk about what we're talking about, providing yeah. space for dads and fathers and men to talk about the things that we often don't talk about because we often don't ask those questions, haven't had that practice or skills to even talk about those questions. Yeah. For various reasons. Yeah. Um, so I, I totally relate to that mission that you're, you know, different angle, but similar mission um, of, right. hey, let's help dads. And hey, if I help one dad, two dads, if I help them learn how to have a conversation and go deep and, and find friends to talk to and hear right. other dads talk about their journey of, hey, I never did that. But then I realized the the power of, being vulnerable, yeah, know, the big V word, right? Vulnerable, yeah, yeah, and share and find their strength and power in that. Like, you know, I'm not the lone wolf, but like a wolf pack, right? That you know, exactly. we we share the burden or the whole hunter gatherer. Yeah, they actually they relied on each other and they needed to. Otherwise, actually, they wouldn't they wouldn't they make wouldn't it be successful, right? <laughs> if they did it alone, that's uh, doesn't really work that way. They they would right. probably most likely die by themselves. You know, especially if they're hunting and dealing with the you know out there. If someone got injured, so they needed each other. So um, right. So you learn this and, and through this whole blogging experience, you found some guys reach out to you and you realize, oh, let me start talking. And then you start, I'm guessing this practice, you know, kind of practicing talking um, yeah. to these guys and realized, and let me ask this, what, what did you, when you first start talking to these guys like deeper, what was that, what was that like for you to kind of first begin that process? It was, it was weird. Cause I'm like, mm. I've never done this before. Like if anything, <laughs> I've ever only ever opened up to like girlfriends or my wife previously. And because it was a way of like, I'm, oh, I'm being vulnerable and girls like that and they find it attractive. Mm -hmm. That That is the only time I've, and it was always superficial. 
but this was like sharing with some of my buddies from from college and sitting around a campfire mm. as one of the great places to have deep conversations. I, I absolutely. And and we're just chatting about like, you know, difficulties that we're going through or desires that we have that we hadn't shared before of what mm. we want to do with our lives and and where we want to go and some of it's like where do you want to travel to? Some mm-hmm. of it was like, hey, I'm I'm having a hard time with my dad or I'm having a hard time with my brother or I'm having a hard time with the religion I grew up in or anything of that matter and being able mm-hmm. to to just open up and not be judged about it and just mm-hmm. have guys be like, yeah, man, that, that sucks. I hear yeah. I hear for you. Mm-hmm. And yeah. having a bunch of other guys not try to solve the problem, but just listen to you makes you feel like, you know, life's life's hard everybody's going through something difficult and it's normal to go through difficult things yep but it's also normal to have good things happen too like absolutely ways yeah and it's funny you said not funny but you said the thing that guys often struggle with most and i'm speaking to myself of this as well this is uh, but having guys just listen and not solve it Mm -hmm. which the reality is them listening is solving that particular need in the moment yeah it may not solve the situation, but it's right. solving the need that we actually all have is we want to be heard, listened to, accepted without judgment that yes. we can just share. And that is the solve, if you will, in the moment. Right. You know? And it's and it's a good practice to do with our wives. Yes. <laughs> and I often when I'm working with couples, because uh, often men get stuck in that I just want to fix it mode and it's right. good intention. And I, I do want to say that there's nothing wrong with wanting to fix something. No. I, I think... Know. There's, there's good, it's coming from a good place. Like, well, of course, however, comma, <laughs> you know, there's not one, we can't always fix it. Like we, there's certain things we just can't fix. Right. And there's certain things that we have zero power or control over. And often in those moments, what our wives or partners or even guy friends are actually really needing is just to be, to not come up with a particular solution. Sometimes they do. And sometimes we, we can, right? They're, sure. There are those moments when we, okay, let's problem solve, right? Let's actually get, put our heads together. But usually the first mm-hmm. thing we do is just listen to her, man. That's the solve. And they're like, wait, that's it? Just yeah. sit and listen? And I get this all the time, like a shocked look on these guys' faces. Because again, they've, there's been no experience or training of that. It's right. just, they, it like hits them and they're kind of like in disbelief. Like, no, that's not it. And the wife's over here doing, like shaking. Like, yes, yes, yes. Like, yeah, that's, that's literally all I need. And I'm like, and then I have the guy, I'm like, look at your partner right now. Look at her face. She's nodding her head. <laughs> like, because mm-hmm. they're looking at me like shocked. Like, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense to me. I'm like, right. I know it doesn't. <laughs> I, I know. Right. Um, but that is the solve. And once they, once it clicks, they realize that's the solution. Like, that is the fix. And you, you give them the, essentially, it's giving them a new tool, right? It's giving you mm-hmm. a new tool. It's like, this is, it's a fixing tool, but it, it's, it's a different fixing tool. It looks different. It operates right. differently. Then they start to do it and they come back. And I'm like, and how did like, it go? Whoa. They're like, it worked. And I'm like, and I'm like, ask her what else she needs. And sometimes often they're like, I want a hug. I'm like, okay, there you go. Give her a hug and listen. He's like, that's yeah. it. I could do that. I'm like, yeah, just do it. Just keep doing it. You know, I'm like that's, that's it. And then they start doing it and you're like, oh, it's doing better. Right. Um, and that's one, that's one of the things that, that my wife and I have grown over time to do is sometimes I'll even ask her, like now I'm, I'm pretty good at deciphering now that mm-hmm. we've gone through this whole experience and when she needs an answer or when she needs someone to listen. Um, but in the past, like I would ask her flat out, I'm like, hey, this, sound, this sounds pretty heavy. Are you wanting me to just listen or, mm. or, do, you, or do you want me to help? give you any sort of solution or help you work through it. And, mm. and she would communicate back. Oh, I just need you to listen right now. And I'm like, okay, I'm here. And I just listen and, and that's it. And I started to do the same with her. Like, Hey, I've got something I just want to get off my chest and it's just been bugging me at work or bugging me here. And then she just sits and listens and, and it's an extremely helpful tool. Yeah. And I love that you said, learn to ask what you need because it gives your partner the key. Yes. It gives them the key. And then and then what happens is, lo and behold, they tend to meet your needs because they right. know, oh, you just want me to listen? Okay. Right. Versus trying to fix it or solve it. Yeah. You know? And don't be afraid to also communicate what you need. Exactly. What do you Because my my love languages are are um 
it's physical touch and words of affirmation mm. and uh, which is very common for men yep and i yeah, yeah, that's my, yeah. yeah and sometimes i tell my wife like i just i just need a hug right now uh. or i just need i just want to sit down and watch a movie next to you mm. like can we can we do that tonight or whatever i'm just need i'm I, I just i just need that right now i need to feel close to somebody and she's yeah. like oh yeah sure that's fine. And then for my wife, it's quality, it's quality time. And I think for her, it's also words of affirmation. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I try to seek out moments throughout the day when I see that she's stressed and it's like, Hey, let's go, let's play a board game. Let's do this. Or just, you know, Hey, you're, you're a great mom. You're doing a good job. I know it's a tough day today. <laughs> yeah, man. When I get that from my wife every now and then when she's under oh, great it's dad, the absolute best. Oh my gosh. Oh, I'm like, I, I, sometimes I feel like I didn't realize it. I needed to hear that. Yeah. You know, like, oh my gosh. You know, sometimes you hear that and you're like, God, that's really nice to hear. Because <laughs> yeah. sometimes you, you know, you get stuck in your head, right, as a dad. And, um, yeah, you, you know, that feeling, you feel like you're doing something wrong or you just yelled at your kid, you know, and, uh, you feel you're like, like trash after. You yeah. feel like trash after. And you, you're just like, gosh, man, I, I know I, you know, I know that's not right. And, you know, and, and, uh, Yes, therapists do mess up too. If anyone's listening, therapists are yeah. people just like anybody else. And yes, I do. I, I lose my cool at times, and I know yeah. that I'm. I know all the skills. Trust me. I, in fact, I'm study, probably pretty hard critic them, in my head. Them, yeah. Yes, tr- I know them. Yes. and you know, and and you know, I could definitely be hard on myself, but yeah. Uh, and I've learned, you know, obviously I apologize to my kids. I, I model, you know, repairing, yes. which is very important. I'm so sorry. And and dad, dad yet raised his voice. That's not okay. He was frustrated, but that's not okay. Dad needs to take a breath. Yes. <laughs> I, I've even had my kids say, take a breath, dad. You know, it's okay. Because I my, do breaths yep. with them. <laughs> yeah. Which is great when your kid reminds you, you're like, oh, thank you. Yep. Thank my you. boys cool. have done the same. It's like, dad, if you're frustrated, yeah. you can just go outside or yeah. do whatever yeah. you need to do. Like, which is amazing. Bud. And then you get your wife or partner saying, you're, it's like, it just hits you when you're like, oh man, I needed that. You know, yeah. it's those, uh, especially if that is your love language, it just, you, it just hits you, hits you differently. You're like, oh, yep. That's why those words matter. Words matter. Um, 100%. Thanks for joining and listening today. Please leave a comment and review the show. Dads are tough, but not tough enough to do this fatherhood thing alone.